want to ask that you turn in your Bible to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Psalm 130, I'll go ahead and read it, and uh, we will ask God for his help as we study this psalm together. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I want to preach to you this morning on the topic, hope in God. Hope in God. Let's pray together and ask God for his help as we study. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you are a God that is trustworthy, a God that we can hope in. I pray, Lord, that as we study Psalm 130 this morning, that you will show us not only of our unworthiness before you, but the help that we find in your mercy in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so I can't see any of your faces, so uh, if if I uh, uh, say something that is uh, funny, you have to like make noise so I know that you're smiling, all right? Or if I, uh, uh, you know, make a point, I need to hear an amen or two uh, because you guys uh, are all wrapped up right now, all right? Um, As we get into Psalm 130, let me begin with, uh, with this story. There was a couple who was married for 15 years, and they were experiencing an unusual uh, number of arguments, uh, an unusual amount of uh, debates in their marriage, and getting on each other's nerves. And so in an effort to try and uh, make their marriage peaceable, they decided to use a fault box. And so what they would do is each uh, husband and wife, they, they had their own fault box, and whenever they offended each other or did something wrong, Uh, they would write on a piece of paper the the other person's fault and put it into the fault box. And at the end of the month, they would come forward with all of their faults against one another and deal with them all in in one uh, one conversation together. So the end of the month came, and they pulled out their fault boxes, and the the wife began with her fault box, a uh, list of accusations, a record of wrongs, 
committed by her husband. And she read them one at a time and uh, uh, brought his faults before him. And then it came time for him to pull out his fault box, which he did. And uh, he handed her his fault box. Is that me that's making those noises? Do you know? He handed her his box of faults, and she opened it up, and on every slip of paper were the words, I love you. I was about to say that's a true story of my wife and I, but the Lord knows that that's a lie. That's why he keeps messing with my sound here. Is it my mic, do you think? Want me to try to use another mic? Just tell me what you think. Um, in the text, we see in verse 3 this question, this thought, if you, O oh Lord, iniquities, what do you want me to do? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Meaning, if God were to have a fault box against you, who could stand? The story, though, perfectly illustrates uh, a character of God as he's revealed himself to us, and that is this, is that he keeps no list of wrongs against us. And in the place of our sin, he has written... I love you. What is unique about the church in the world? Pastor Ray Ortland question is it, is it our organization? No, it's not our organization because the world can organize themselves. Is it our doctrines? Well no, it's not just our doctrines because the world can have doctrine the world can center themselves around various propositional truths. What is it that really makes us distinct in the world? And what it is, is our message that Jesus Christ forgives. That God is a forgiving God in Christ. That through Christ, you can be reconciled with God. That's what we see here in Psalm 130. Without the reconciliation with God, we have nothing but depths of despair. Our depths of despair don't really have to do with your problem with another human being. Reconciliation with each other is nice, but that doesn't solve our depths. Our, our core problem is the fact that we need reconciliation with God. Now let's think about this problem. What happened on Mount Sinai? What did Moses receive from God? He received the law, the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me. Do not make yourselves a graven image. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day. Honor your parents. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. Now, who can say that they have not broken the law of God? As the story of Israel goes on, it is clear and apparent that we cannot keep 
the law of God. We stand then before God as sinners. And that precisely is what leads, I would say this, all of humanity into depths of despair, whether people know it, realize it, or not. We, are, we, uh, we have despair, we have affliction, we have trouble. All around us, outside of us, there is trouble. Wars, violence, chaos, division, uh, problems with your health, problems with your family, problems with the church, problems with society, things that kind of hit us from the outside, but then there's also the inner turmoil. Our trouble is not just outside of us, but our trouble is inside of us. Guilt. A fearful heart. Shame. Bitterness and anger. Pride. And this leads us down this dark spiral into the depths of despair. Three universal truths. Number one, nobody is immune to these depths. Everybody in society finds themselves deep in this loss. Number two, everybody is searching for hope. Searching everywhere, looking for something that would give them some kind of relief from the depths. And number three, nobody in their flesh naturally has any clue where hope is found. And that's why we come to Psalm 130 this morning. This is what's unique about us as a church, what we have to offer the world. And that is this declaration. Your hope springs from faith in God. From faith in God's character and from faith in God's action. Our text this morning is called by Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest psalms. Spurgeon prescribes this psalm as the, the uh, remedy for when you are feeling in despair. He says you should sing Psalm 130. It could be divided into four parts, which I want to divide my sermon then into four parts. Number one. A desperate situation. We begin with a desperate situation. The psalmist is in a desperate situation. Look what he says at the beginning of the psalm. He says, out of the depths. Out of the depths. Do you know something about these depths? Do you know something about what it looks like and what it feels like to be in trouble? My kids forced me to watch a movie a couple months back called 47 Meters Down, a terrible movie. It's, it's, about, uh, it's about these two sisters who uh, are, are talked into going into a cage dive with great white sharks. And little do they know as they're putting on their oxygen masks and their wetsuits and getting into the cages that the the cord keeping the cage to the boat is fraying. And as soon as they get in, the, the cord 
breaks and they drop 47 meters down to the bottom of the ocean floor. And that's where the rest of the movie is. I say it's a, you might enjoy the movie. I, I just got super depressed. I like I had to go to the word after it, like, because there's this depth of despair as you feel these sisters dropping in this cage to the bottom of the ocean floor, and for the rest of the movie, they're sitting on the bottom of the floor. There's, they're cut off from radio communication. They're cut off from, uh, from, from the sunlight. They are surrounded by the sharks. I just wonder, I'm using that to ask you this question. Do you know something about the horror of the depths? Being deep. Being deep in your sin deep in your shame, deep in your troubles, deep in your problems. The psalmist begins in a desperate situation, and there is no human effort that can possibly rescue the psalmist from his depths because his depths are not the depths of water, but they are the depths of sin. His problem is that he is in need of reconciliation, not with man, but reconciliation with God. However, in the depths, look at verse 1. He says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Listen, you are never too deep that you cannot cry out to God. You can never be deep enough to where you cannot look to the throne of heaven and cry out for help to God. I think of Israel in Egypt locked away for 400 years and they cried out to God in, in Genesis. It says God heard their groaning. God heard and God saw. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. Because even darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. How good is it to know that there are no depths too deep to pray in verse 2, O oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Do you think you are too deep to cry out to God? Has sin dragged you into these depths, wreaked havoc in your life in such a way that you have forgotten to turn and look to God? Do you look around society and you see all of the confusion and the division and the injustice and the hostility and the depths of despair that you forgot to look up? Has your addictions, your escapism, your habits, your flesh driven you into this deeper valley of despair than you ever imagined you would be? Do you know that you are not too deep to look to the throne of heaven? This desperate situation leads the psalmist then to a part two, humble confession. A humble Confession, look at verse 3. He says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? 
I'm finally just now watching this docu-series, The Last Dance with Michael Jordan, chronicles MJ's NBA career. And in the first episode, they say that it wasn't until his third game in his first season that Michael Jordan, quote, proved his worth. Do you know how upside down the kingdom of God is? And the kingdom of God... Like, it's just completely backwards. In society, you've got to prove your worth. If you are playing in the NBA, the NFL, you've got to prove your worth. If you're going to make it as a doctor or a lawyer, if you're going to make it as a writer or a politician, or out here on the streets, you've got to prove your worth. But the kingdom of God is upside down. We do not prove our worth in the kingdom of God. It's the absolute opposite. You cannot come into the kingdom of God unless you first realize that you are utterly helpless. Utterly in need of His mercy. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling. We come naked before God. And we find in Christ what we need. True holiness then begins when we stop trying to prove our worth and we we embrace our helplessness before God. The picture the psalmist uses is in verse 3. He uses the picture of an earthly judge who has kept a fault box. He has a tally of everything that you have done wrong. He has a list. Now, imagine standing before this judge and they bring out the list of all that you have done. A cumulative case of accusations against you. What the psalmist is telling you is this. If that is the way God was with us, none of us would be able to stand. None of us could stand before this God. If you, Lord, the word Lord is Jah, which is the personal name of God. It references His uh, uh, all-seeing, all-powerful eye and being. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, iniquities is a, is a fancy word for sin, if you should keep a record of our wrongs against you. Now let me talk about the problem of sin for a second. Sin is the problem of human society. What has messed up the very fabric of of our makeup as a human society is our sin. As one person said, there is no tear that is cried without sin as the cause. Sin is responsible for every grave that is dug. Sin is responsible for every prison cell that is built. Sin is responsible for even hell itself. Your sins condemn you before this God. And if God were to judge you based on a record 
of your sins, if he were to pull out your fault box and say, let's have a reckoning, the psalmist says, nobody could stand. Who could stand? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. The most moral man on this planet could not stand before God in his flesh. The purest on earth would not make it. That word stand is, is, a, is this idea of survival or being acquitted. Meaning if God unleashed his unhindered severity against us for our sins, none of us would make it. Therefore, the most moral man on earth clings to verse 4. He says, but. Don't we love the word but in Scripture? If hell, but. Verse 4, but. He says, with you. There is forgiveness that you may be feared. Look, look at those words, with you. It's not as if forgiveness is a part of who God is. But it flows from the very nature of who God is. William Plummer said this. He said, forgiveness is thy inclusive, exclusive, I'm sorry, let me start over. Forgiveness is thy exclusive prerogative as flowing from thy grace, as being the glory of thy government, full, free, and absolute. Listen to what he says. He says, forgiveness is the glory of God's government. Let's think about that statement for a second. What was the glory of the Roman government? Probably the military power the Roman government was able to wield in the world. What is the glory of the United States government? Maybe you could say it's our constitution. I don't know. But what I do know is this, is that God's power is greater than Rome. God's laws are purer than any laws that we can come up with. Yet his, the, the glory of his government, the glory of his government is not in his power alone, is not in his laws alone. But Plummer argues the glory of God's government is in his forgiveness. Well, that takes us straight to the cross because we have to understand the cross to understand that the glory of God's government is in his forgiveness. As Christ hanged on the cross, He hung in His glory. It made much of God for Christ to die for our sins. That brings then Him most glory. Meaning there is never a time that we can stand before God without the blood of Jesus Christ. There's never a time from the time that we were saved, I think sometimes we think of the message of the blood as for the non-Christian. You know, it's for evangelism. We tell the non-Christian, hey, you need to understand the gospel so that you can be saved as if we get the gospel and then we just move on and get on to the morals of life. Listen, you need Christ at the beginning of your faith. And as you mature in your faith, 
Today, you still need the blood of Christ. You still come to Jesus Christ as your personal Savior right now. And when I'm 80 years old, I will still be in need of the blood of Jesus Christ. And for all of eternity, I will be in heaven, not by my own merit, but by the, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Who can stand without the forgiveness of God that we find in the gospel? Now the result in verse 4, this is why he does this. He says, so that you might be feared. He forgives, check this out, he forgives so that he might be feared. His forgiveness of you actually draws out fear of him. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's not the kind of fear that you would have for a, a, a tyrant. It's not the fear that you would have for a cruel dictator, but rather this fear in the Scriptures means that we are utterly dependent on the mercy of God. And so we, we then cherish Him with absolute, utter reverence because He is your only hope. Explaining it two different ways. One, I'll use Jonathan Edwards' uh, analogy of a spider hanging on a, a string. Some people believe that maybe when uh, Jonathan Edwards was preaching this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that, that he literally saw a spider drop into the middle of the room, just hanging on a thread, and then he used that spider as an analogy. And he said, imagine that there is a spider with the fires, the flame of hell, licking up toward him. He is utterly dependent on that thread. Don't you realize that that thread is the mercy of God? You are that spider. And at any moment, at any moment, God, if he willed it, could snip the, snip the thread. We are utterly dependent on the mercy of God. Don't you see how forgiveness, coming to God helpless, then becomes the root of our holiness. Forgiveness doesn't remove our need for holiness, but forgiveness becomes the foundation for our holiness as we fear God. Well, and secondly, forgiveness comes in, in a method. It comes to us in such a way that draws out our fear of God. How does forgiveness come to us? God doesn't just simply declare it. He doesn't just simply look the other way, but rather he puts the fury of his wrath onto his very own son who knew no sin, who became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we look to the method at which forgiveness comes to us, we stand in awe and in reverence of God. He forgives so that we might fear him. Now, back to this idea of hope. Let's get back to hope. In the depths, where do we find hope? Answer, hope springs from faith in God's character and God's action. The third section here in Psalm 130 is then a call to hope. Look at verse 5. 
He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. You know, nobody likes to wait for anything. I mean, that's actually been exposed in my own heart during this pandemic. I don't want to wait for anything. I am severely impatient. We wait in lines. We wait at red lights. You know, I read recently that we wait, by the end, by the end of our life, we will have waited for three years. Think about that. Nobody likes to wait. So question, how is this a good thing to say that we wait on God? Well, there's another kind of waiting in life. In a sense, everybody is waiting all of the time in life. Waiting for some kind of Superman. Waiting for some kind of hope to come along. The, the question is not whether we are waiting for hope for the next big thing, for a pay raise, for our vacation. But the question is this, who are you waiting in? Who are we called to hope in? Look at verse 6. He says, my soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. The repetition of that phrase. The repetition of this longing to wait just draws out the sheer beauty of eager expectation in the Lord. What does it mean for us to wait on the Lord? Well, a quick look at the Scriptures and how the, word, the, how the uh, Bible uses the word wait. In Job 7-2, wait is used for workmen who are waiting on their paycheck. So there's a sense in which we are waiting on an eager uh, uh, blessing, or eagerly waiting, rather, on a blessing to receive from the Lord. Psalm 25, 3, those who wait on the Lord are not ashamed. Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord and He will strengthen you. Psalm 37, 34, those who wait on the Lord will inherit the earth. Proverbs 20, 22, waiting on the Lord is to trust that He will deal with e evil. Isaiah 40, 31 says, those who wait on the Lord renew their strength, mount up with wings as eagles run and not be weary. They walk and they, not, they will not faint. To hope, then, is to wait. To wait on the Lord is to hope. It is an eager expectation that God will come through. And it is all-encompassing. Every aspect of our life, there is a sense of waiting on the Lord. Waiting on His judgments, waiting on His righteousness, waiting on His forgiveness, waiting on His ultimate redemption. You see, church, the problem is not just out there. The problem is in here. We are rebels against God. Ultimate redemption then comes through the forgiveness that we received from Him. So here's kind of the whole premise. This is the way I break down Psalm 130. Hope, which we see in verses 5 through 8, is based on the foundation of forgiveness of sins in verses 3 and 4. Meaning hope and forgiveness of sins are not two different items in the department store of God's kingdom. But rather, the hope that we have as we wait on the Lord is based on His 
forgiveness of our sins. He says, my soul waits. In verse 6, my soul waits. This isn't just an intellectual thing for him. He's not just simply sitting back on his hands. But rather, his whole being, which he refers to as his soul, is put into this active waiting on God. Waiting on God, hope, is not a passive work of the mind. But rather, it is eager expectation in our activity. As the guards of the city back then would be longing for the sun to rise so that the fear of being attacked overnight would be gone. Oh, they would wait with this eager expectation for the sunrise. The psalmist says, more than the watchmen wait for morning. More than even the watchmen wait for morning. I'm putting my hope in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and I'm longing for His appearance. This leads then lastly to a calm assurance. A calm assurance. Somebody once said of forgiveness that there are three groups of people. Number one, there are those who are secure in Christ, but they're not sure of it. There are those who are sure of it, but they're really not secure in Christ. And then he said the third group is there are those who are secure in Christ and sure of it. That third category is where we want to be. We, we are led here in Psalm 132, a calm assurance that you would know that you are in Christ. The one ex- exhortation that we receive in this psalm is in verse 7. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. That is our call this morning, is to hope in the Lord. For, here's the basis for it, with the Lord there is steadfast love or mercy. And with Him is plentiful redemption. How sweet is the word redemption for sinners. With Him is plentiful redemption. How does this redemption come? It doesn't come through God merely weeping over us. Redemption doesn't come through a declaration, but redemption comes through the blood of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Meaning it is a perfect kind of redemption. It perfectly satisfies the law. It perfectly meets our needs. And look what the psalmist says. He says there's plentiful redemption. Not just a little bit of redemption. Not just, uh, 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 you know, just barely enough to get you through. But he says there is plentiful redemption. As we've quoted time and time again before, one of the old authors of times past, he says there is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. His redemption is plentiful. 
There's nobody who will come through the doors of our gatherings that is too far gone. There's nobody for whom the blood of Christ is not sufficient. There's enough grace in Christ. And for even you, church, saints, members of this church, professing believers in Jesus Christ, you have this hope today. There is no treason that you can commit that puts you too far beyond calling out to the Lord and finding that His redemption is enough. Plentiful. Now, does forgiveness immediately extend to all people? The answer is no. Even here in the text, it extends to His people. Israel. Or as the New Testament goes on, the church. The blood-bought citizens of God. So then how do we know that we are recipients of the forgiveness of God? Well, you know as you are part of His people. Well, how do I know that I'm one of His people? Well, we look for the signs of what it means to belong to God's people. And one of those signs in this text is that you fear God. You reverence God. You treasure God. You depend solely on the work of God in Jesus Christ. Let me close with a story. A young man named Joseph was, bought, uh, was born into a household of 12 boys. He was loved by his father, given a coat of many colors, and as a result, he began to be thrown into the deep. First, he was thrown into the depths of a pit. Then he was thrown into the depths of slavery in Egypt. After a, a, a quick promotion to Potiphar's assistant, he was then thrown into lies and deception. A greater depth than he had known before. Finally, he found himself thrown into the depths of a prison cell. There deep in the Egyptian dungeon, nobody knew he was there. Nobody knew where to find him. He was utterly cut off from those who would have loved him. He was utterly alone. He had absolutely nothing. But he feared God. In Genesis chapter 39, verse 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. Meaning, church, we don't care if we are thrown into the depths of the pit as long as the Lord is with me. The depths of loneliness, there I can praise Him. 
In the depths of darkness, I can look to His light. In the depths of my sorrow, I can hope in Him. In the depths of guilt, I wait on Him. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. It's as if God through the psalmist is saying, I know you, I know you are in deep, but look to Christ. And in Christ, you're going to be okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Psalm 130. We thank you for the hope that we have in these depths. I pray for the man, woman, or child in this room who feels in the depths of despair. God, right now, I pray that they would cry out to you, look to you, and find in Christ all they need. I pray for all of us that we would never believe ourselves too, so moral and so pure that we have no need for the blood of Jesus Christ, that we always depend solely 100% on your mercy and on your grace. And from there, that we fear you, that we live for you, that we revere you, that we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.